This is the Thoughts from a Page podcast, where I interview authors about their latest works. My name is Cindy Burnett, and I love to talk about books. For more book recommendations, check out my website, thoughtsfromapage.com, and follow me on Facebook and Instagram at Thoughts from a Page and on Twitter at burn 555555. I thoroughly enjoy producing this podcast and am so grateful for all of you who tune in. While it is always free to listen to it, I do incur a lot of costs producing it, and I have set up a PayPal link on my site for anyone who is willing and able to help contribute to the podcast, and the link is in my show notes. I am so grateful for your support, and no amount is too small. I have commissioned a bookmark that I will send out to anyone who donates more than $10. Thank you so much in advance. I am also working on some other fun things for the podcast, including some merchandise, so keep your eye out for that. Before I get started with this episode, I want to highlight another podcast that you might enjoy listening to called Ballsy History. Here is a little bit about them. Hello, Hello. it's Elliot, Elise, Elizabeth, and Maureen, and we're the hosts of Ballsy History, a weekly podcast about big personalities and little-known stories. Join us for a tour of the outrageous acts, incredible stories, and outsized characters that shape history. We look forward to having you join our fantastic community of history and quirky story fans. Please tune in and subscribe today. You can find Ballsy History on all your favorite podcasting destinations. I hope you'll check them out if you have a minute. Today, I am interviewing Hala Alion about the arsonist city. She is the author of Salt Houses, winner of the Dayton Literary Peace Prize and the Arab American Book Award, as well as four award-winning collections of poetry, most recently the 29th year. In addition to The New Yorker, her work has been published by the Academy of American Poets, Lit Hub, The New York Times Book Review, and Guernica. She lives in Brooklyn with her husband, where she works as a clinical psychologist. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Hi there. I'm Heather Drago. And I'm Sarah Saunders. We host the podcast, That's a Hard No, about saying no and setting boundaries. So you can become that true and empowered you that this world needs. Saying no isn't just okay. It's the key to living an authentic, fulfilling life. I'm a licensed professional clinical counselor. So while this podcast is in no way a replacement for one-on-one therapy, I suppose I know what I'm talking about. I'd say so. We talk about learning to say no and set healthy boundaries and how it impacts mental health, physical health, relationships, parenthood, and more. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and visit our website, hardnopodcast.com. We're here to help you find your no and say it unapologetically. That's a hard no. Welcome, Hala. How are you today? I'm doing okay. How are you? I'm doing well, too. I'm really excited to talk about the arsonist city. Same. Thanks for having me. Oh, of course. Well, why don't we start out with you just telling me a little bit about the book? Sure. Yeah. So it's basically two stories interwoven together, and one takes place in the 60s and 70s with a young woman in Damascus coming of age who dreams of moving to Hollywood and becoming an actor. And after the Civil War begins in neighboring Lebanon, she kind of becomes involved and gets caught up with a couple of young men, one Lebanese, one Palestinian, and it sort of changes the the trajectory of her life. And in the end, she agrees to marry the Lebanese man kind of begrudgingly because he's moving to California. 
And so she sort of thinks that she's going to go and have this life of, of, of glitz and glamour and then kind of ends up having this experience of like an immigrant's wife in the middle of a desert town in a part of the country where she's completely isolated and completely alienated. And then the present day story is kind of fast forward to her husband and their grown children are going to Lebanon to try to dissuade the father from selling his ancestral home. And it's kind of like this over the span of a summer, there's a ton of like family secrets and all these explosive things everyone's been keeping from each other that come up. Well, what made you decide to write this story? Like, where did you come up with the ideas and how did all of that unfold for you? I I had a dream about what would become Mesna's plot. I basically just had this really vivid dream about this woman in Damascus who really wanted to move to Hollywood. And it was really detailed and really vivid and really odd. And I woke up and sort of feverishly wrote down everything I could remember about the dream. And then just sort of didn't touch it for a while. I I remember thinking like, maybe someday I'll turn that into a short story. It just felt like a very kind of like a random plot that had kind of come fallen into my lap. I was actually, after Salt Houses, really interested in writing a novel about a group of expats in Beirut. So I spent eight years of my life in Lebanon. Four of them were at the American University, so my college years, essentially. And I was pretty well acquainted with the expat scene there. And it's a very specific kind of scene. It's very interesting. It's very vibrant. And it's filled with, like, in some ways, character, like, in some ways, like, people that are very similar to each other and in some ways, like, wildly different. And I was interested in writing a story that, a book that was sort of a look into the expat culture in Lebanon. And I was talking through some of these ideas with my editor and then she, and I just remember her saying, like, we just got to find your elevator pitch. We got to find your elevator pitch. And I ended up being like, you know, what about that woman that I dreamt about and thought, well, okay, what if she, what if she's kind of the heart of the story? And what if the story sort of ripples out from her and was really pleased to see that I could keep the elements of, of expat culture that I was really attached to through Najla, through the youngest daughter that stays in Beirut. It started off as two very separate ideas. And then I, I, I just borrowed elements of them and, and kind of married them. That's so funny that you say that about the dream, because you're the third author that I've spoken to in the last two weeks whose story inspiration came from either a dream or a character almost speaking to them like, you need to tell my story. That that must just be a common thing. Yeah. I mean, I for me, it was like, I definitely am and someone that's a very active dreamer and a vivid dreamer. And this was like, even this was unusual for even me. Like It was such a, I just remember dreaming kind of the plot of someone's life. Like as though I was watching a movie and then waking up and being like, oh my God, somebody be like, I immediately opened my laptop and just like word vomited everything that I could remember. I find dreams to be really, really profound. Like if I fall asleep trying to figure out a knot in a plot of something that I'm working with or an image in a poem that I'm thinking about, I will oftentimes wake up and in those first couple of moments can find the solution there. Like there's something that happens in sleep that feels really like magical to me. Almost you're working it out in your dreams. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Well, I have very vivid dreams, but they're usually not like that about someone I don't know and another story, but I will wake up and think, whoa, my gosh, what happened? Like I'll be someplace and it's supposed to be my house, but it's really not in the dream and supposed to be my friends, but it's people I don't know. And you're kind of like, what in the world is that? Well, did you have to do any research? Yeah, I did. I did a fair amount of research, actually. And I was given a fellowship at the American Library of Paris, which was amazing. Amazing! It was an incredible month and such a wonderful institution. And they, I mean, obviously they're a library, so you have access to all these books and then just also access to time. 
And I really dove in then into the Civil War and just sort of like the, the Lebanese Civil War is one of those things that's incredibly complex and nuanced. And if you ask five different people what started this war, you'll often get five different answers. So I, again, I, I spent a fair amount of my coming of age in Lebanon and I, and I majored in political science. So I was like, I feel like I have a relatively good handle on this. But then when I started writing the scenes that interwove the political landscape, I was like, Oof, I think I need to get like, really feel like I have a strong understanding of what's happened here. So I did a fair amount of research in that. And then also just kind of like immigrant life in small towns in the Southwest, in the West, in like the seventies and eighties. And then there was kind of the research, like there was sort of history unfolding as I was finishing up because I intended for the, the, the present day to take place in the summer of 2019. And then obviously unbeknownst to me, a couple of months later, the revolution started. And so there was a fair amount of going back and looking at the plot through that lens, because there's some allusions towards the end of the book to what comes next in the future and whatnot. And then it was a little bit like trying to catch up with what was actually happening to make sure that I wasn't that I was writing something that was at least giving a nod towards what was actually happening in the world at the time. That's interesting that you say that. I know people are really struggling with that related to the pandemic too, kind of forwarding into 2020 and you've got this book coming out and now do you incorporate it? Do you not? Right. Yeah. I mean, in my case, I knew that tw- I knew that it ended at 20 in 2019. So pandemic wasn't even something that was on my radar, but I, while I was doing edits, and actually, I think even after I'd submitted the edits, the revolution started a few weeks later. And so there was I, the number of times I wrote my, the people at Houghton Mifflin was just like, I'm so sorry, I need another few days. I need to adjust this paragraph. I need, because it was just like the things that were happening in Lebanon were happening at like breakneck speed. And so like such intense changes in the country were happening very quickly. Yeah. So fast that you wanted to make sure you captured what was going to be accurate. At least as much as I could. At some point, you have to stop writing. You know what I mean? Like at some point, you have to press save on that file and send it out. So there, there was just no way to keep encapsulating everything. But but yeah, I, I definitely just wanted to make sure I was at least alluding to it. Yeah. Well, I was not familiar with the American Library in Paris, and I just read the Paris Library or Paris Librarian, and it's a historical fiction book that's set in the American Library there in Paris. Is it something that's open to the public? Yes, it totally is. I mean, I don't, with COVID right now, I don't know what's physically open, but it, but yes. So assuming no COVID, it definitely is. And they have a ton of like events and programming. And so they have, I think a lot of the stuff now is remote. So you can go on their website and access it that way. But when things are in person, they have, I believe, like weekly conversations or biweekly conversations with different authors visiting local. They'll have the fellows. So essentially people like me that were, are going there for a month to research and think about their work. And then those folks will also give a talk about the book in progress. So that was really fun too, because I got to speak about this book while I was in the middle of writing it. And I, and my time there really helped firm up the plot. What do you hope readers take away from your book? That's a lovely question. I, I have a lot of fondness for this book. I really love the family and I love the journey that they all go on both together and individually. And I hope that folks enjoy spending time with this really quirky, dysfunctional group of people. In a lot of ways, this book feels like a love letter to Beirut. And I think that if people walk away from this book with a deeper understanding of Lebanon and a deeper appreciation for it, for all of its complexity, for everything that it's been through, for all the ways that it's been resilient and survived, I think that would be really wonderful. Family conflict and drama seems to be really great fodder for storytelling. 
that just seems to be the basis for so many stories. Totally. Yeah. I mean, it's, 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 for me, it's like so irresistible. And I, I think also because I think about things intergenerationally, just both as a psychologist and then also just as someone who belongs to a diaspora. So I, I think about things like trauma and conflict and fear and whatnot in terms of like what gets passed down intergenerationally. So the idea of exploring secrecy on an intergenerational level and like the secrets that are kept by the older generation members and how those secrets, even though the younger generation, the children, the grandchildren don't necessarily know what they are, it still trickles down. It still affects the identity formation of the people that come later. And I'm really, really interested in that. It completely does, because I think the older generation is trying so hard to hide the secret that it alters their personality, changes their perspective and what they pass down to their children. And then if and when the secret comes out, it sort of rocks the world of the younger generation, too. So it's almost like the entire process of keeping the secret and then eventually unveiling the secret causes so much harm. Totally. A thousand percent. A thousand percent. Yeah. I mean, in some ways, and I think you see this in this book, like it's the desperate trying to, to, to keep the secret from coming out. That is what creates the, the tension. It's what creates, like you're saying, the harm in the book. It's not even the actual revealing of what it is or sharing of what it is. It's, it's all of that effort over decades to keep it from being passed around. I think sometimes, too, the secret itself, if it had just been told originally and dealt with, would cause so much less harm than going through that whole process. Totally. Yeah, I completely agree. I mean, I think that there, I think there is, there's this expression that I love that's like, don't rob people of their pain. And I think there's something similar in this idea that like people are not having access to the truth. Someone that I know really beautifully, I want to try to it justice to how they said it, but it was, it was something like not having access to the truth is a kind of harm. And, and in some ways it's an even more insidious kind of harm because you don't even know that you don't have it. Like you're not sure what's causing the tension or what's causing the grief or what's causing, like you don't even know what you don't know. And I think there, there is something to be said for people talk a lot about like lie versus emission. What's the harm if someone doesn't know something but it's like, I think it's actually quite I think it's quite significant because I think that it does affect you. I think it's like no, there have there being some crucial familial bombshell that you don't know. I think that it ends up coloring and affecting so many aspects of your life and the ways that your parents connect to you or your caretakers connect to you, your siblings connect to you that yeah, it's it's hard not to look at it as harm. I think that's right. And most of the time, the person keeping the secret doesn't really understand how much they're conveying that there is a problem or a darkness or a secret, but they are not conveying what it is. And so the children know there's something not right here, but we don't know what it is. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Like, I think that's why when you think about like saying like a child should always know they're adopted, for example, and and the best and the science now is like, like the research now shows like a child shouldn't really remember being told. It should be something they've been told so consistently since they were young that it's part of their birth narrative. It's part of their, you know what I mean? Like it's just something that they know implicitly to be true about themselves, as opposed to like having some big moment when they're seven or eight, where you're like, here's this big piece of information. Like ideally there is no memory of a particular time of them knowing. It's it's more that they've always known this thing to be true about themselves. And I think stuff like, like I feel like research in those areas indicates how like why it is so important to be transparent about things that will ultimately affect the, the younger generations. 
Right. So there's no big reveal that tells you this long-standing thing about yourself that you don't know, but instead it's just been part of your story from the beginning. Exactly. 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 Which character did you enjoy writing the most? Ooh, I love that question. I think Najla, because she's based in Beirut and she's also based in a particular subculture of Beirut, a queer subculture, an artistic subculture. She kind of mingles with the expat community. She very much feels like a native daughter of the of the city, but then also someone who's an outsider. So there's a lot of really fertile ground to cover with her. And I just also really like her personality. Was she hard to write or was it easier to write her because you were really excited about writing her? I think in some ways she was harder because I was so excited about her. But I think that once I got into the swing of things and started really like just trying to delve into what it, what it, what her experience was like and what it is like to be that far away from your family, what it's like to be. I mean, I think also just writing essentially like a rock star character is just really fun and so outside of anything I will ever experience. So I think being able to take liberties there was also really exciting. I love that there are all these rock star books coming out. That's what, such a fun thing. I'm the same way. I love music, but I would never, ever be a rock star. But it's just so fun to read about them. I know. They're exciting. They're just living, they're living a totally different life. Yes, that, that is certainly the case. I love titles and covers, and I'm always so curious what went into the selection of them. So tell me a little bit about first your title and then your cover. Sure. So The Arsonist City was, I had a placeholder title for Salt Houses for a really, really, really long time, like until after I found an agent, I still had a placeholder title. And I was interested in this idea of like the role that fire plays traditionally in protest in the art of protest and in the tradition of protesting, setting fires to things, using fire as a form of what one person can call destruction, another person can call sort of resistance. So that was where the arsonist city came from. And then the the cover was just like totally... I give a thousand percent credit to the to the publishers to Houghton Mifflin because they it was the first and only mock up that I saw and I was like I love it beautiful like I immediately fell in love with it I think they captured it's just there's something really dreamy about it and it also feels really modern and I love the the little figures standing outside smoke like yeah I just it's a, a great cover and the tree where it looks like it's kind of reflecting fire a little bit and everything. And it kind of looks like confetti, like the tree, like the tree sort of, yeah, it's, it feels like a very visually appealing cover. That's interesting. I was sort of assuming those were embers, but I like that confetti. I, so I think they, they, they probably are more like fiery, but I, when I first saw them, I was like, these look so festive. It looks like confetti. How long did it take you to write this one? This book was actually relatively quick. I started it after Salt Houses. It took me about a year after Salt Houses came out to really start working on it. So I would say about it's like maybe a year and a half, like a little less than two, like less than two years. The publication got pushed because of COVID elections and whatnot. So it took a little bit longer for it to actually, it's taken a little bit longer for it to actually be in the world. But it was, it was like done, done in the middle of, I think the first, it was like early 2018, it was finished. I did not realize it had been pushed back because of COVID. It was supposed to come out. I honestly don't remember. It got pushed twice, essentially. I have been so curious to see how this plays out because so many books were pushed back. And so then it seems like on top of kind of the normal January, February, March, lots of books, it just seems like there are books coming out right and left. I know. There are a sea of releases (laughs) that are coming out this time of year, which I don't know. I mean, we'll see what that means for the individual books. But yeah, I definitely think there's a lot of stuff that that are holdovers from last year where publishers didn't want to quite release them in the pandemic. 
and the printing trouble and just trying to figure out how long this was all going to last. I mean, there were a lot of factors, but I feel like, and maybe it's just because I'm more involved now with the podcast and everything. Every time I turn around, I'm like, oh, there's, I've missed books that I didn't know were coming. I know. I've been having that experience. The book was supposed to come out, I think, later in 2020. Like, I think it was like the early fall and then it got pushed to this winter and then got pushed to March. But so I wasn't someone who was, it was supposed to come out at like March of last year or April of last year. It was was more that it was always going to come out kind of later in 2020. And then I think because maybe it's because so many things got pushed from March, April, May, that then they just sort of had to like make space for the rest of them. And the idea that you can't have a book coming out during such a prominent election, that was something I was not aware of either until the fall. So I feel like I've learned so much. Yeah, I mean, I think it's, I like, I feel like it's my understanding, which is super limited and probably incorrect, is just that there's a lot of attention paid to what's happening, like the news, certain nonfiction kinds of books, political analyses, et cetera, around such a, especially in, in the case of this past election, especially this kind of election, that I imagine it does take attention away from, from other kinds of books. And the way it all played out, it certainly would have. So, I mean, it's a wise thing. It was just something I wasn't familiar with. Are you working on anything at the present that you would like to share with me? So I'm working on a nonfiction collection of essays, chapters. The, the, the format, the structure is still sort of in the formation stage, but essentially it's about the concept of erasure on a cultural level and then sort of on an individual level. So it's, it's sort of like a cultural memoir that's also kind of grounded in my experience, my life. So yeah, it's been it's been really fun to work on it. I love that there are more and more books coming out about the topic of erasure and cultural identity and the fitting in part and not fitting in, just all of it. I feel like that that is so educational for people that haven't experienced it or have experienced something different. It's just a great way to learn. Totally, totally. Yeah. I, th- I think it's been really like delicious over the last few years to just like read about more people's experiences in general and just kind of, I don't know, get, get like different insights into different cultural underpinnings. But I think also just the way that a concept like erasure manifests so wildly different depending on where you are in the world, what sort of privileges you have. So yeah, it's been, I, I, it's been really interesting to kind of unpack some of these issues culturally and then think about how they connect to my life. I look forward to reading that one when it makes its way out into the world. Thanks. I appreciate that. Before we wrap up, I would love to hear what you've read recently that you really liked. The last three books I've read have been, I would say, equally impactful and really just they've, they've, they've stuck with me. The first is Leave the World Behind by Ruman Alam. It had me buying like clean drinking straws at three in the morning. Like literally in the middle of the night, I was like ordering stuff. And then, <laughs> and then such a fun age by Kylie Reed it was like a brilliant, brilliant, brilliant read. And then the book that I just finished was Brit Bennett's The Vanishing Half. So yeah, I would like strongly recommend those three. I am aware of all three of them. I've only read the last one and I loved it. And I loved her first book. Have you read The Mother's? I haven't read The Mothers, no. I need to get it. I already have like a major, like a massive to-be-read pile. But but yes, it's, it's definitely, she's absolutely on my radar. And I think The Mothers was like a, it was like a bestseller. It was like a very famous book. It's, it's funny that I was introduced to her through the second one, but it's so, she is an incredible writer. So many people have said that. And I read it when it came out and it was one, actually one of my favorite books that year. And I just thought it was phenomenal. And I really like The Vanishing Half a lot too but I love the mother. So you'll have to go back. I know what you mean. It's hard. You got a big old stack, but add it to your list. 
I, it's definitely added. Yeah, I can't wait. Well, thank you so much for joining me today on the Thoughts from a Page podcast. I really enjoyed speaking with you about the arsonist city. You as well. Thank you so much for having me. This is wonderful. Thank you so much for listening to my podcast. If you liked this episode, and I hope you did, please follow me on Instagram at Thoughts from a Page. Tell all of your friends about the podcast and rate it wherever you listen to your podcasts. I would really appreciate it. The Arsonist City can be purchased at Murder by the Book or from the Conversations from a Page bookshop storefront. The link to both is in my show notes. Thanks to KP Regan for the sound editing, and I hope you'll tune in next time. You know, a lot can happen in seven minutes, and luckily, that's how long it takes me to tell a story. My name is Aaron Califato, and I'm the creator of 7-Minute Stories. I'm proud to partner with Evergreen Podcasts, and I'd like to invite you to join me on this journey. I'm going to take you on some crazy roller coaster rides using my unique extemporaneous storytelling style, and together, we're going to try to make sense of the world, all through the art of storytelling, and all in approximately seven minutes.